How is everybody? Can you hear me? Good. I'm going to set this down. Welcome to Greater Alton. My name is Mike Dinius. I am not the normal guy. I am by far not the normal guy. Um, so if you don't like today, come back next week. It'll be perfect and better and awesome. Uh, there's a few announcements before we jump into the lesson. Uh, next week, we are taking the youth group to a youth rally over in St. Louis called Dare to Share. It's going to be awesome. Um, and I haven't got the final number. I don't know how much money we still need. A bunch of you guys gave money last week, I know. So if you still want to give money, put a little note on your check, and it will go to the office. It will get to us. If not, it's great. Thank you for all your help. The kids are really excited to go. And then April 4th and 5th is the ladies' retreat. Really? That's it? It's only $20. That's better. And it's here at the church building. Um, and I've never been, obviously. Uh, but what I've heard is it's awesome. They're going to be talking about old ladies. Um, not anybody here. But they're going to be talking about ladies you can learn from in the Bible. And it's going to be a great time. I know my wife is really excited. Um, I have, before, also, before we jump into the lesson, I have a letter that I was asked to read. It's from Steph Gill, and for those of you who don't know Steph Gill, she's dealing with cancer right now, and her, Dan, and the kids wrote us a thank you card, and they would like me to read this. Dan, I, and the kids, Steph, would like to thank you all for the prayers, cards, texts, food, and house cleaning. It is so encouraging to know that we are not alone, and we love you all very much. Love, Dan, and Steph. Okay, so now all that's out of the way. Um, the reason I'm up here is there was something I was really excited about, and I shared it with Alan. And then Alan goes, hey, type something up for that, and, and email it to me. I said, okay. And like a week later, Tim comes up and says, hey, Alan emailed me what you emailed him. Will you preach on that? Yes. Yes, I will. Um, what I've been, what, it, it's been about a year since this kind of popped in, I've talked, popped in my head, and i talked to some of you about this already, but reading through the Bible, how many of you guys get lost in the list of names? Yeah. See, Leviticus I thought was bad. I thought Leviticus was bad. And then I started getting to the list of names. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't even know how to pronounce these, these names. And later, I'm going to wing it. So, when we're reading names, I don't know if that's how they're said, but... But I, was, I, I, I promised myself when I was going through the Bible in a year, I'm going to read the list of names. And I did it. And you know what I noticed? Names kept reappearing. And one of them stood out to me. And that's this guy we're going to talk about this morning. And what I've been learning from this really obscure character in the Bible. Uh, if you will, turn to First Chronicles 13 if you have a Bible. I'm going to read most of the chapter. Um, what's happening is David is trying to put the kingdom of Israel and Judah back together. Because they've been split. There was Tribes were scattered. They didn't like each other very much. And he's trying to reunite them. Saul's gone. He's king. And something happens. Something significant really happens. And we're going to pick it up right there. What's, what's happened is... The Philistines have had the Ark of the Covenant, which is what this beautiful thing is that Ryan Donahue made for us. It's, it's to scale. 
And it's gold, and it's pretty, and it's in the way. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to pull a Chris Farley and fall on it. But what has happened is the Philistines had this, and they had it in their temple to their God. And, and what had happened is people were getting sick. The Philistines were getting sick. And they kept finding their gods knocked over in their temple. And one day they found their gods just smashed. And they're like, all right, it's time to get rid of this thing. So they put it on a cart, pulled by oxen, and they kick it down the road. The Israelites find it. And that's where we're picking up in First Chronicles chapter 13. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is the will of, our Lord, of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all of Israel from the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of God, from Kiriath Jerim. David and all of Israel went to Bala of Judah, that is Kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the Ark of God, the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the Ark that is called by the name. They moved the Ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God, and that day asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. All right, so what you're probably thinking right now is, how is that talking about family? <laughs> okay, so the ark comes back. It hits a rock, goes to fall off, some dude tries to catch it, dies, and we're going to talk about being a steward of family. Okay. Go with me on this. The reason we're talking about this is Obed-Edom. And the reason we have this up on the screen is the Ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. See, this name, Obed-Edom, stands out to me because later on you're going to see it come up again and again throughout this book of First Chronicles. And even it pops up in Second Chronicles. And he's in lists. And if you don't read lists, you don't catch it. And I never read the list. This was the only passage I ever thought talked about Obed-Edom. And it's not. And I was really challenged when I kept reading. You see, <coughs> he's a very important person even though nobody ever talks about him. Nobody ever studies him. And then I was like, I'm going to study this guy out. And just from this passage, we can learn a few things about Obed-Edom. And I'm going to set this up for you because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about who he was. We're going to talk about what he did. 
So there's four things we can learn about Obed-Edom just from this passage. Number one, he was an Israelite. The Israelites just got the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't leave it with another foreigner. I mean, if we just got the Statue of Liberty back from the Taliban, would we want to give it to the Iranians? No. We can't carry this. Will you hold it for us? No. We'd, we'd want to take care of it. So, there, he's an Israelite. There's, he's got to be. I wouldn't just leave it with anybody else. Something else we can learn about him. He lived in Gath. Now, Gath, the reason we know he lived in Gath is his name is Obed-Edom the Gittite. Gittite is like saying St. Louisan or Altonian. So, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. Does anybody else here know a famous person from Gath? Mike does. How about the name Goliath? Goliath was from Gath, and so were his five relatives, who were also giants, or four relatives, who were also giants, whom David and his mighty men all killed. So, he's an Israelite, and he lives in Gath. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. Third thing. He was a Levite. He was a priest. He was from the tribe that was designated priest of God. So not only is he an Israelite, but he's a special Israelite, and he lives in Gath. It's weird. We don't have any other word to say for that. It's weird. At this time, Levites weren't centered anywhere. That God spread them out throughout the land of Israel so that God's people could always be close to a priest. They could always be close to somebody who would go to God for them. And I think that's pretty important. The fourth thing we know about Obed-Edom is that he feared God. Now, I'm not saying he was like trembling in his boots, he was scared. I'm saying he honored and respected God. He feared him. The reason I know that is he didn't die. Uzzah reached out, tried to catch the Ark of the Covenant so it wouldn't fall. Great thing, right? He died because he touched the Ark of the Covenant. He didn't do what the law of Moses had said. It was supposed to be carried on poles. If you look right here, there are poles. The Levites are supposed to carry this thing. You're not supposed to touch this part. They had it on a cart pulled by oxen. They weren't doing what they were supposed to. And Uzzah tried to catch it. He died. Obed, he didn't die. I'm betting he knew how to treat this thing. It stayed with him in his house for three months, and he didn't die. And nobody in his family died. In fact, they were blessed. So, he's an Israelite. He lives in Gath. He's a Levite, and he fears God. That's what we need to know about Obed-Edom before we move on. So, what... Did I learn about stewarding my family from this obscure person in the Bible? Well, let me tell you. <clears throat> Number one, first thing I see from Obed Edom is that being a steward of my family is not going to be comfortable or easy. Or easy or comfortable, depending on how you write it. It's not going to be easy or comfortable. Look at this thing. How many of you have a really large house where this would fit easily into it? Okay, I'm guessing there's not a whole lot of people. 
this is rather large. And I don't know about you guys, but I like to touch shiny things. <laughs> and you're not supposed to touch it. Okay, so a man just died. And David walks up. Mind you, David's angry at God. So I'm, if you've ever read anything about David, I would not want to meet that man when he's angry. David's angry at God. He walks up and says, we're leaving this at your house. Are you going to argue? No. But you might be like, find a way. Well, let's do something else with it. Let's not put it here. This was in his house. That's not easy. Can you just think, hey, uh, tell your kid, hey, uh, Issachar, go, go get the newspaper for me. Don't touch the ark. You, you'll die. Don't touch it. That's not easy. That's not comfortable. You've got to change the way you live because God's in your house. God is in your house. It's not easy to teach a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Well, yeah. She won't, like, she won't like me talking. My daughters won't like me talking about them, but they're not here. It's not easy. Yeah, Gary, that's right. It's not easy to teach small children not to touch the shiny thing, is it? How many of you have something shiny, like a TV screen, that has little itty-bitty fingerprints all over it? Am I the only one? No, I'm not the only one. There's grubby little fingerprints all over my TV screen. There's grubby little fingerprints all over my DVDs and stuff. It's like... Stop. It's not easy. So there's a giant elephant in the room. You've got to learn to walk around it. You've got to learn not to touch it. You've got to learn to respect it. The ark changed the way they lived. That wouldn't have been easy. But then Obed-Edom does something else. And we pick it up in First Chronicles chapter 15. And again, deal with me here because there's a lot of names, a lot of Hebrew names. I'm going to take a drink so I don't stutter over all of them. All right. First Chronicles 15, 11 through 18. Then David summoned Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, Aminadab, the Levites. <coughs> and he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. It was because of you, the Levites, did not bring, up the, bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. <coughs> we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the, Lord of God, the ark of the Lord of God, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the Levites appointed Heman, son of Joel, from his relatives, Asaph, son of Berechiah, and from their relatives, the Merites, Ethan, son of Cushiah, and with them their relatives next in rank, Zechariah, Jaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Beniah, Messiah, Mattathiah, Elethelu, serious, that's what it says, Mekaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. So not only 
was it uncomfortable and difficult to have the Ark of Covenant in his house? Well, when it comes time to leave, he moves you with it. He goes with God to Jerusalem to hold a door. He's a gatekeeper. He's just going to watch a door. I don't think that's easy. I don't think that's fun. I don't think that's comfortable. I think that means means moving your family to be close to God. I think that means taking a demotion. Because for me, God sits here. It's the center of the Hebrew religion. And it's in my house. I could have power. But when the time comes, he lets it go and then follows it and serves it. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. I would have a hard time making that decision. I don't know about you guys. Maybe some of you that's really easy to do. Not for me. Something else that's not easy for me with my family is discipline. I, I don't like disciplining my children, but I know I have to. I know that if I don't, they're not going to be the spiritual champions. They're not going to be the productive citizens that I want them to be. And the Bible has words on that too. In Proverbs 13:24, it says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. It says careful. I think the reason they stay careful is it's not going to be easy. And that's just, that's me. I don't know, you guys probably have some other stuff that's difficult. I know I have some other stuff too that's difficult in raising my children. But this is the one that stood out to me. That's not easy or comfortable. And in Ephesians 6, it tells us fathers not to exasperate our children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Disciplining my children consistently is probably one of the hardest things for me to do. Because I like to be fun, Mike. I don't like to be the bad guy. But sometimes you have to be. And for me, to follow in the footsteps of Obed-Edom, which I'll show you later, he did. I'm sure he did. I need to consistently discipline my children in accordance with God. The last thing on this point, and then we'll move on. He's an Israelite that lives in Gath. He's in Gath, the home of Goliath. Mind you, David has been walking around with Goliath's sword on his back. It's another story for another time. So they've been, Goliath's been defeated. But still, it's Gath. It probably wasn't easy or comfortable for a Levite to live in Gath. But God had the priest spread out so that all his people could be close. We live in Gath. As Christians, this is not our home. And we're raising children in a place that's not our home. We're raising children in Gath. And it's not easy and it's not comfortable. Let's, let's look at the second thing. What else have I learned from Obed-Edom? The second thing I've learned is I'm going to have some hard decisions to make. Obed-Edom has let something dangerous come into his house. It's essentially saying, I'm going to have a weapon of mass destruction sitting in my living room. 
and I can't touch it, and I have children and grandchildren and all types of stuff running around it that can't touch it. That's a tough decision to make. And then, on top of that, when it gets ready to move, he makes the tough decision to go with it and take a different job, perform a different task. <coughs> Are there tough decisions God's calling you to? Are there things that he wants you to decide on that you don't really want to make that decision? Let me put it another way. Is God obvious in your home? You see, for me and Cassie, we have really tried to make God obvious in our home. And mind you, me being up here does not mean I have it all down and I am perfect. I am far from perfect. I fail a lot. And my children will let you know that I have not been perfect and I have failed a lot. And they're only five and two. They're... Well, anyway. The youngest one is me. And she lets me know it. But how is God reflected in the decisions you make in your home? Um, God was obvious in Obed-Edom's house. I mean, that's not just a decorating statement. He... He wanted people to know he was a follower of God. We don't have an Ark of a Covenant anymore. We don't have a building that's designated for our worship. We have a building. But the building is not the church. We are the church. And the temple is not the church. We are the temple. In First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. As Christians, we have God in us. God no longer sits above the cherubim. He sits here. And he sits in the hearts of your children and your wives and your husbands. Does your, does your decisions reflect that? Do your decisions honor the fact that you are a temple and that they are temples? <coughs> Um, I want to share with you a passage that's been kind of a guide for me in making tough decisions. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 24. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. What's happening in the church at Corinth is there are people making decisions that aren't necessarily sin for them, but it's causing others to stumble. Therefore, it's wrong. It's not wrong for them to do, but it's wrong for them to influence others. I look at this passage, and I think about it, and it's showing me I have, I have some big responsibility when it comes to my family. On your notes, there's two, two little blanks there. The first one... We decide between good and bad for our families. Cassie and I decide between what is good and what is bad for our daughters. And that, in itself, is difficult, especially in today's culture with so many gray areas. But we decide what is good and what is bad. But I think what's more difficult decision than deciding between good and bad is good and better. Before we ever had kids, we made the decision 
that they are going to be involved in one activity at a time. We're not going to be those parents that, okay, we're, Blythe is in gymnastics, in dance, playing softball, and Kara is doing whatever it is Kara wants to do, too. We're not going to be those parents running back and forth and being just crazy tired all the time, not spending any time with each other. We decided they're going to do one activity at a time. And that was our decision. If you've made a different one, it's fine. I'm sure you've thought about it. But in choosing that, it's not bad to do all those other activities. But it's better to do one because then we have time with our family. We have time to develop the training that Proverbs tells us that we're supposed to do. We have time to spend with our girls and talk about things that matter. <coughs> we have time to make God obvious in our home. None of those things are bad. It's great to be involved in gymnastics. It's great to be involved in softball. It's great to be involved in dance. But for us, it wasn't good to be involved in all three at the same time. And there's other things. There's other things. TV shows, radio programs, internet. It's all good, but it can become bad. So we have to decide between good and better for our family. Our daughters love listening to music. <laughs> if, if you're listening to like Y98 or Z1077 or something, and a certain song comes on, you'll hear them, you'll hear them, hear them both in the backseat start singing. Such as... Taylor Swift. My daughters, my daughters love Taylor Swift, and it's bad because they know the words better than I do, which I guess isn't bad because then I'd have to cash in my mail card. But, but they, they get mad at me because uh, that Trouble song by Taylor Swift. Trouble, trouble. There's a version on the internet sung by Smeagol. Golem from Lord of the Rings. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, it's so awesome because he's saying, Pushes, pushes, pushes. And it makes my oldest daughter so mad when we're, she's singing in the car and I just break out with, pushes, pushes. She's like, Daddy, that's not the word. It is to me. They also, they also love Katy Perry. Now Daddy loves Katy Perry. Not for the reasons some of you are thinking. But they only know three songs. I think three. I can only remember two of the names. They know Roar and they know Firework. They don't know California Girls. They don't know Teenage Dream. Dark Horse, they know the new one. But even that's like, mm, we just turn up the bass really loud so you can't hear the, the words. But I used to be able to sing all of Roar because of my youngest daughter. Sing with me, Daddy. I don't know the words. Learn them. We monitor what comes in. And then, and then, like I said, we're not perfect. When something slips through, something always slips through. Like there'll be, I, I can't give you an exact example, but I know there's been times in the past where I've been listening to a song. I really like the song. And then I actually listened to the words. It was like, oh, we can't listen to that anymore. Why not? Well, this is why. And then we take the time and explain to them why we're not listening to that anymore and why that song's not good. 
it would be so much easier to just keep listening to it. But I'm making the decision between good and better for my family, and between good and bad. Like I said, I'm not the best at this. And even then, my big struggle, my big struggle is when I start getting into a TV show I really like, I really get into it. Friday night, we had some people over at our house, and uh, we had a Doctor Who night. It was awesome. We watched Blink. For those of you who are Whovians, we started with Blink. All the rest of you, doesn't matter. You don't need to, you don't need to know what I'm talking about. But go on Netflix, watch Doctor Who Season 3, episode called Blink. Make sure it's not dark when you start watching it. But I really got into Doctor Who. Let me explain how much I got into Doctor Who. I started watching it the first week in November. Somebody said, you really need to watch Doctor Who. So I was like, all right. Watched it. I was like, this is a pretty good show. I'm going to keep watching it. Let's see. It's March 16th. Since the first week of November, I've made it through seven seasons of Doctor Who. When I get into a TV show, I really get into a TV show. Problem is, is if I'm not careful, I will sacrifice my time with my family. I need to make sure I'm choosing between watching Doctor Who, which isn't a bad thing, and spending time with my family, which is a better thing. My daughters deserve my time more than my TV. It's really hard to make that distinction. And you know what I'm learning? I'm learning that for me to make the best decisions for my family, I have to become more selfless. It has to become less of me. The third point is actually the one that hit me the hardest when I started looking at Obed-Edom. The third thing I learned is what I do may not seem important. I interviewed my daughters for this lesson, and I videotaped it, and I was going to show you guys, and it was hilarious, and then the video didn't work. Not here. It didn't work on my computer, and my computer hates me now. So I'm going to tell you what, I, what they said. I interviewed them, <coughs> and I asked them what stands out to you girls. I asked it in a, in a lower way. What do you girls like that me and mommy do? Absolute first thing that came out of their mouth was just before bedtime we get to eat ice cream. I went, oh, yeah, ice cream. But then it was followed up with just before bedtime we get to eat ice cream and then we read a story and then we pray and we sing a song and we go to bed. That is the first thing Blythe said. Kara kept talking about ice cream. Like I said, Kara takes after me. What I'm noticing is the little things that I don't think are important. It's little stuff that make huge impacts. And I know some of you have already said this before, from up here even, years ago. It's the little things that matter, and I was dumb college-age kid. I'm like, yeah, sure it does. Okay. But I'm learning, at the heart. I'm learning it as I'm getting older, as I'm raising children. The little stuff is really important, and you don't even know most of the time what effect it has on your kids until later. Let's look at First Chronicles chapter 26. <coughs> First Chronicles chapter 26. I'm going to read verses 1 and then 4 through 8, and we're going to end up at 8 here. It says, the divisions of the gatekeepers from the Korites, Meshelamiah, 
Asaph, son of Kor, one of the sons of Asaph. Obed-Edom also had sons, Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehozabad, the second, Joah, the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathaniel, the fifth, Amiel, the sixth, Issachar, the seventh, Pehulathai, the eighth. For God had blessed Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom's son, Shemaiah, also had sons who were leaders in their father's family because they were very capable men. The sons of Shemaiah, Othni, Raphael, Obed, and Elzabad. His relatives, Elihu and Semachiah, were also able men. All these were descendants of Obed-Edom. They and their sons and their relatives were all capable men with the strength to do the work. Descendants of Obed-Edom, 62 in all. Obed-Edom had 62 relatives serving with him in church. That's awesome. I hope one day when I'm old and when I'm almost as mature or more mature than some of you, sorry. More mature than, than when I'm older. When I'm older, I want that. I want my kids and my grandkids and whoever else serving with me in church. How do you think that happened? I think Obed-Edom just followed what God told him to do. I think he looked he looked at the, the scripture God had given him, and he was like, I'm going to raise my kids what God wants me to. And I don't think that these 62 people had to be dragged to church. I think they wanted to be there. The one thing I am super proud of, that I don't think I had very big of hand into it, other than the fact that I just love God and love being around His people, is my daughter's love coming to church. Yesterday, they got up. I say they got up because we didn't. They got up, and I went in there. And I was like, hey, girls. They're like, we're going to church. I was like, no, that's tomorrow. What are you doing here then? See, we've been on overtime, and I've been working Saturdays, so they're used to me being at work on Saturday right now. And I walked in yesterday morning, and they just assumed it was Sunday. And they just assumed Daddy's getting us up to go to church. Woo! And I go, no, we're not going to church. We're going to go watch cartoons and eat breakfast. And I'm like, oh. like, really? Really? Aw? Okay, well, I'm glad you like going to church. See, Tim said something up here. I don't remember when it was, but it hit us. He said, he asked the question, do you take your children to holy places? I don't know if you guys remember him saying that, but it really struck me and Cassie. And on the way home that day, we had one of those conversations talking about the lesson at church that I never want to have. And um, But I love my wife, and she's a beautiful person, and I... I will talk with her about everything. And and she goes, we don't take our children to holy places. And I was hard-pressed to think of a holy place we had taken our children. And I kept thinking about it, I kept thinking about it. I was like, no, we do take our children to holy places. She said, where, where have we taken them that's holy? And I said, we designate the holy places. 
I'm not letting somebody else tell me what a holy place is. Bedtime at our house is a holy place. Driving in the truck or the car, going somewhere, talking about the day, just the day, that's a holy place. Pretty much anywhere I take my children and I'm training them or I'm loving on them, anywhere I take God with me, which is everywhere, becomes a holy place. You see, we, and I say we, I mean me and Cassie, used to struggle with, well, do we take our girls with us if we're going somewhere? And we don't anymore. We love taking our daughters with us. In the past year, I can think of times where we've taken them to a funeral or a hospital or a wedding, and we got to talk about what was going on. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a little voice or seen a little hug be more comfort than anything I could do. I I can think of a time not too long ago um, where we were going wasn't necessarily a holy place, but it became one. We went and visited some people in the hospital, and the girls couldn't go up to the room, and I had been sick. I couldn't go up to the room either. So Cassie went up to visit, and somebody came down from the room, and before I could even do anything, mostly because I was playing on my tablet and I was oblivious to everything but my children, all of a sudden I heard them say somebody's name and get up and run to them and give them a hug. And I'm like, that's better than anything I could do. And it's just awesome to watch my children serve and make holy places. And they learned that because of the small stuff that I was doing. I was showing them. I think of other people's kids that I see now who are serving. And I didn't talk to her about this, so she's probably going to be embarrassed. But I think of Miranda Kiffmeyer. And um, last week, I think it was last week, she comes up to me and she goes, Hey, can you give Cassie this note? I was like, Okay. I was busy doing something, and when I got done doing it, I read the note. What it was is she said, I heard that you guys reward Car. Well, she said, I took Cara potty twice, and I heard you guys give her stickers, and she goes. And so I took her potty twice last week. Here are some stickers. Now, mind you, made me feel like punk because we give her these itty-bitty little smiley smiley, smiley face stickers that are like that big. She loves them. Miranda comes up with these big old stickers that are Disney princesses. And I'm like, I guess I got to go buy more ice cream. Gosh. But Miranda didn't just do that on her own. She learned that from watching Mike and Kim. Something else that I learned from Mike and Kim, something that I thought was small but I've realized how big it is, is at dinner time, if you're in our house, you sit at our dinner table. And at first I was like, okay, yeah, we can do that. Cassie was asking me about it. I was like, yeah, let's do that. That's cool. It has taught our children so much. If you're in our house at dinner time, you're at our table, and you are family. Life and Cara love that. Uh, Matt Neeswalk, they call him Uncle Matt now because he has been at our house at least three times a month for dinner. And he even has his own spot now. <laughs> it's hilarious. The girls put a chair at the end of the table so both of them can sit by him. It's awesome. But it's the little things. It's, it's showing my daughters how to serve and how to love people. And to be honest, life doesn't need help learning how to love people, but Cara does. <laughs> Cara, Cara loves you in a 
different way. She's she's my little terrorist. It's awesome. So frustrating. The side note, they got stamps at Valentine's Day. Not like the lick them, put them on, but like the stamp pad. And I hear Blythe and Cara arguing in their bunk bed, top bunk. I'm like, what's going on in here? And I hear, no, Cara, don't. And I hear a smack. And Blythe starts crying. Blythe's five, Cara's two. And I'm like, I walk in, I walk in. I'm like, what's going on, Blythe? Like, she punched me in the face. And I'm like, what are you doing? I look up right as Cara goes, Nothing. So there's a red stamp on the ceiling above the bed right now. It's hilarious now. It wasn't then. But the little things, the little things we do are just so important. We will feed our children. We will give them food. We will give them water. But are we giving them spiritual food? Are we helping them get closer to God? Are we showing them how to serve? I can think of a bunch of you out in the crowd right now that I've watched teach your children how to serve. And I've learned from you guys. you got to remember the little things are really important. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 and 9, it says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Something I've been really impressed with Cassie and with Elena, because Elena watches our girls during the week, is they have our girls memorizing scripture. Now, I think life could still tell you Proverbs 17, 17, even though I can't right now. And I'm pretty sure she could tell you Psalms 24, 1, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And I chalk all that up to Kathy and Elena, because I'm bad about it. Another one I'm not showing you. There's a whiteboard in their room. It's a really cool whiteboard. It's like 3D. My mom gave it to him. And it's got a scripture written on it right now. It's Psalms 24, 1. We're teaching them to learn stuff. Right now, since we're studying stewardship in this lesson series, our daughters are learning about stewardship. Um, we have one of the, the cups. I know people turned them in last night at the Family Devo, but there was cups out in the Welcome Center and putting change in it. And our girls, their allowance is whatever change in their pocket. And we teach them, you know, put some in here. And, and Blythe brings offering to a little kid church in the back. We're teaching them how to serve. It's little things. We sit at the dinner table for dinner most of the time. We're able to talk about our day. We find that really important. Our dinner table is another holy place. The girls, I don't get to pray very often over the meal. Because the first thing I do is I ask who wants to pray. Usually it's Tara or Blythe or both. Sometimes they say mommy, sometimes they say daddy. But when we do pray, it's not thank you for the food, thank you for today, amen. It's let's talk about what you need. Let's talk to God about what you're really thankful for. Who needs God right now? Who needs help? That's what we pray for. And we pray for the food. But we're teaching our children little things. <coughs> Are you making the little moments count? 
Let's look at the fourth thing that I've learned from Obed-Edom. And I've noticed this comes up a lot in this, in this series on stewardship. What I learned is God rewards responsible stewardship. We've looked at Matthew 25, the, the parable of the servants. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And we saw that the first two did good things with what God gave them. And God rewarded them and said, well done, faithful servant. You've been responsible with little, now be responsible with much. And he gives them more. That last guy didn't do anything with what God had given him. And God takes what he had given him away and gives it to the one who did the best. God rewards good, responsible stewardship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys some passages. I'm going to give you time to write them down. They're not going to be on the screen. You can look them up later if you, if you want to. I, I would recommend it. Don't just trust me. But I'm going to show you a progression in Obed-Edom's life. We looked at First Chronicles 13, 13 through 14. And there we see him come from obscurity to caretaker of the ark. The ark comes to his house. He takes care of it. God rewards him. In First Chronicles 15, 17 through 21, you see him go from caretaker to gatekeeper. Which I kind of thought that was a demotion. But the more I looked at it, the more I see how important that is. He went from a guy who took care of the ark to a guy who held the door for God. I don't know. There's a lesson there somewhere. It's just something I saw. First Chronicles 16, verses 4 through 6, we see him go from gatekeeper to musician. And then later on in that chapter, in First Chronicles 16, 37 through 38, we see him go from musician to a supervisor. He's in charge of more people doing what he was already doing. And finally, in First Chronicles 26, verses 4 through 8, we see him go from supervisor to a storehouse manager. He got put in charge of one of the storehouses of God. And I don't know how you guys do with money. I'm not the best when it comes to money. This dude got put in charge of the gold and treasure for, the, for God. He was incredibly responsible. I wouldn't just trust that with anybody. God is rewarding good stewardship in Obed Edom's life. But that wasn't the coolest part. Him getting promoted in his job, I don't think, is the coolest part for me. The coolest part, we start seeing in First Chronicles 13, where it says his household was blessed. I did a little research. I don't know how much I trust it, but it's a cool thought. And, uh, I looked up in a Jewish encyclopedia. Historians, historians, and I don't even know how they put all this together, but they think that in the three months the Ark of the Covenant was in his home, there were six babies born into his family between his daughters and daughters-in-law and wife and every, all the women in his family. Six babies born in three months. Back then, the size of your family showed how wealthy you were. Six babies. I would hate to live in that house. <laughs> we had one at a time. And, ugh, oh, all the diapers. We did washable diapers with car, which I'm assuming is what they did because they didn't have disposables. Man, that... Trash can pail, diamond pails. Bad with six babies. And then we see 62 of his relatives follow him to church. They serve with him. Dads, do you want your kids to follow you to God's house? 
I do. Do you want your kids to follow your lead? Later on, Obed-Edom was mentioned one more time in the Bible. And I bring it up because I believe it shows how good of a job he did. Now, what you need to know is a lot of the times when they talk about a name in the Old Testament, sometimes they're not just referring to the individual. Sometimes they're referring to their family. Like when they say um, Israel, they could be talking about Jacob or they could be talking about the whole kingdom of Israel. When they say Edom, they could be talking about a kingdom Edom or they could be talking about Esau. In Second Chronicles 25, verse 24, we see Obed Edom's name again. This is just me, but it was his whole family working together. So I think, just for me, Mikey's thoughts, when it says Obed Edom here, I'm thinking it's him and his family. Now let me set this passage up for you. We are 210 years later after the death of Obed Edom. Ten kings in Judah have risen up and fallen away since David. Amaziah is the king in Judah, and he's got a power trip going on. He did one good battle, conquered one nation. He was like, I'm going to take on the world. So he starts poking Israel with a stick. And um, Jehoash is the king of Israel, and he pretty much says, you're an idiot. That's what he says. He said, will a thistle declare war on a cedar of Lebanon? I just butchered that a little bit. But pretty much is what he says, you're moron. You should not pick a fight with me. Don't do it. Amaziah does anyway. And Jehoash brings the army of Israel and destroys the wall of Jerusalem. And then we see this. In verse 24 of chapter 25, it says, He, Joash, took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of God that had been in the care of Obed-Edom, together with the palace treasures and the hostages, and returned to Samaria. This storehouse is still remembered as the one that was taken care of by Obed-Edom and his family. God rewards responsible stewardship. What are you going to be remembered for in 210 years? I don't know if I'm going to be remembered for anything. (coughs) But what I'm challenged by in this passage is it makes me think, what am I leaving for my daughters and for their children? Am I leaving a legacy? Am I leaving... Am I going to be that guy that when I'm older, people look at, or my family will look at great-grandpa Mike, which sounds really weird right now, but they're going to look at great-grandpa Mike and be like, I want to be like him. Or are they going to be, or is it going to be like he's on that other side of the family that we don't talk about? Everybody has that side of the family. Don't look at me like that. But uh, we can learn from his bad example and not do what great-grandpa Mike did. I would rather leave a legacy than a curse. And I think if I stay a responsible steward of my family, mind you, I'm not perfect, I'm trying, if I continue to try to be a responsible steward of my family, I'm going to leave a legacy. God will reward my stewardship. I look forward, in part, 
in part, I don't want them to grow up too fast, but I look forward to the time when my daughters can really serve with me. Right now, they serve. They serve as much as they can. But I'm thinking, man, wouldn't it be awesome to be life up here, worshiping on the worship team? I'm like, oh my goodness. That'd be awesome. I look at Chelsea, and, and I make a joke with her. Chelsea is Blythe grown up. <laughs> and I'm like, that would just be awesome to see Blythe be a godly woman like that. To see Kara, I have no idea what Kara's going to do. <laughs> but she's going to do something. <laughs> and watch out. <laughs> but, but the things I'm doing now are going to develop that. The things I'm doing now are planting seeds for later. We read together. I don't know, I don't know if you guys read with your kids. If you don't, here's a suggestion. Start, and if you have boys who are a little older, who love to still sit with you and read, there's a book series that I recommend for boys called The Lion of War. It's what got me looking at Obed-Edom, because I was curious if the history was right. It's the story of David and his mighty men. And so I started reading Chronicles and Samuel and Kings to see if it was all accurate. You know what? It was pretty close. It's fictionalized. Realistic fiction, but it's awesome. And I'm on the third book now. There's going to be five. And he hasn't written the other two. I'm sad because I want to finish it. But if you have boys, read that. And then piggyback it with the Bible. Talk to them about, hey, this really happened. If you have girls, my daughter has a princess Bible. We talk to her and Kara about how they're princesses of God. And how they should be treated as such. And in doing so, we show them how men should treat women. I take them on daddy-daughter dates. Cassie takes them on mommy-daughter dates. We don't do it consistently like we'd want to, but we take that time. Being a responsible steward of our family isn't going to be easy or comfortable. We're going to have to make hard decisions. We're going to have to do the little things. But we're going to be rewarded when we're done. And I hope in my life, I can look back at it when I'm older, when my time has come, and I can look back the way Obed-Edom can look back and see 62 relatives serving God, knowing how to treat God, knowing how to love God, knowing how to love His people. And I can leave a legacy. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father.